Jesus was born in Lebanon and currently lives and works in Hawaii. She received her BA from the Lebanese American University and her MFA from the George Washington University. She started teaching drawing and painting in 2001 at the George Washington University, taught at the University of Hawaii at Manoa for nine years, and is currently an instructor at the Leeward Community College at the University of Hawaii. Her work has been reviewed by various publications, including the Washington Post and Star Advertiser. Bessus' work is in permanent collections, which include the Honolulu Museum of Art and Shangri-La Museum for Islamic Art, Culture, and Design. Bessus, welcome to The Creative Process. Thank you. Thank you for having me. And so uh, you are an artist. Uh, your your work is very, um, I think the words that have been applied to it is haunting or dealing with memories. I was wondering, as you're beginning a work of art, these works on paper, these paintings, what do, what do you begin with? Is it feeling or memories you have or were you thinking what the what you want the audience to experience? That's a great question. A lot of the, the work that I that I work with is um, based on my memory as a survivor of the Lebanese Civil War. My research has, uh, you know, because every survivor has to intellectualize it at one point. They have to intellectualize the memories so that it's not just feeling all the time. Um, so I found myself doing a lot of research on the role of post-war memory and how the survivor processes, uh, you know, still being alive after having witnessed so much. So uh, basically the work quickly transitioned from an illustration of a war zone, which was what I had witnessed, to the feeling of the how you felt basically being in the war zone so when i start a painting it's not a drawing of the setting or of the war zone but it's a lot of just this tuning into something i always call it something unspoken you tune into something that you can't quite articulate and you just allow the mark making to happen um, so the first two weeks of a painting oftentimes it's just about activating surface and it's just about building the layers. Uh, you know, Beirut is a very layered city, uh, having been destroyed uh, now eight times. It was just previously destroyed seven times. Uh, and so it was first settled 5,000 years ago. So throughout the city, you see these layers of history. You see these Roman excavations. And, and so it makes a lot of sense for me to layer the canvas in a certain way so that um, as I am uh, layering, I'm also excavating and I'm, I'm erasing and I'm digging into the surface. And so there are a lot of things to consider when making an image. Um, I always tell my students, when you're painting, you're not coloring in. You have to, uh, it's a lifelong learning experience uh, to understand what the material of paint really is. You're, you're getting this kind of excavation almost of things that you might be half aware of or things that you only maybe even remember fully in the painting process? Absolutely. I think that, uh, you know, they often say that when you are working, you can't really retrace your steps later. 
you oftentimes step back and, and wonder, well, how did I do this? Um, that often tends to happen with me. I just uh, to really, really tune in. I, I have friends who listen to audiobooks when they're painting. Um, I can't do that because uh, there's so much happening in my mind and there's this really, really intense focus on um, on the process, this endless dialogue uh, with the surface of the paint uh, that I don't even pay attention to anything around me. Uh, so I don't often know how to retrace my steps. So yes, it is tuning into something uh, that I can't quite explain. And also since uh, we were discussing before uh, we began the official interview and you were saying how you have family in Beirut and also in Cyprus and so they're they're um, living they're they're in closer contact and you're working from a kind of memory but you're you're very much in communication with them but I wonder I don't know at what age um, you left Beirut I know you lived in Greece as well so you're having this kind of as I imagine it conversations with your young self and what is that like Absolutely. Um, so I, you know, I lived in Greece until I was about uh, four and moved back to Beirut at the height of the Civil War. And I lived there until I was 21. The war officially ended when I was 12. But I think that between the ages of four and 12, those were very formative years. And so it's a very interesting relationship between constantly trying to, uh, I like how you phrased it, you know, conversations with my younger self, trying to ease my younger self's mind um, and uh, process those experiences through, uh, through, those experiences through a more intellectualized lens in a way. But I think that it's, I, I'm a very anti-war um, advocate. And I think that through these uh, conversations, I am highlighting what that looks like, uh, what, war, what the horrors of war are like to the outside public who may not know. Um, and uh, and the, the fact that we really just don't ever recover from that. Um, and even now with this latest explosion, uh, the amount of memories that have been triggered um, have been really remarkable. Um, it's really unexpected, actually. Yes, I can't really imagine what that is like. And as you see, I mean, it's in, I think it's unfortunate for anyone to go through wars or uh, see explosion uh, currently, which is like another kind of, you know, conditions of war without um, the exact situation. Um, because you cannot get, claim back your innocence of that time. And it's strange. And I know that you are also a teacher. So you, you're also teaching art, but you're also, I guess, art is a healing process for um, young people who've been through these traumatic life experiences. So you will know what it would be like to have a so-called normal childhood. The thing you take for granted. It's take for granted. Absolutely. You know, I didn't realize that I, that my childhood wasn't normal. I mean, I guess 
of course you know, but I didn't fully realize until I moved to the States at the age of 21 and I uh, lived with my uncle for a while and my cousins were young at the time and I saw their childhood and then I noticed that it was very different than my childhood and that's when it really hit me. And ironically, that was when uh, all the dreams started happening of the Civil War. So while I was living in Beirut, it's almost as if the mind protects itself and it suppresses all of that. It wasn't until I moved to the States that I started having these recurring dreams and nightmares of the Civil War. Um, so it's just funny how the mind tends to, to work that way. Yes, I mean, there's all sorts of things that I think happen. I mean, it can forge with when you are strong, like art, they say, is a coping mechanism. You know, it's a way to escape or make sense or make beauty out of, you know, um, you know, make something that at least gives a kind of pleasure, however complicated it is. But um you know, this simplifies it, almost like romanticizes it. Like, oh, you went to the suffering so you can make beautiful art. Um, and all I can see in all your paintings is this sense of a, like a survivor or someone who is going back in time. Um, did you try to ever make art that wasn't related in some way to those formative experiences? When I moved to the States, um, I was in, in grad school uh, in DC and I refused to, you know, you, you go through this period where you don't want labels. You don't want to be labeled as a female artist or as an Arab artist or as a war survivor. And I certainly went through that at one point. And um, my professor in grad school, um, Tom Brown was just wonderful. And he kept slowly guiding me back to working and addressing uh, memories of the war. And eventually I, I worked on that, but I felt, so I, I did about a couple of years of work on that and then I stopped um, and I worked on other stuff uh, for about four or five years. Uh, so I did in fact try. And I think that sometimes you say everything that you have to say and then uh, you, you don't wanna force it certainly. Uh, but the unfortunate fact when it comes to Lebanon is that even though we're not officially at war, we are in a perpetual state of warfare. Uh, so the, the 2006 war happened with Israel and then we had a break and then something uh, like the event that just happened happened. So it's, it's almost as if you get to a point where you're too scared to be at peace <laughs> because you have to prepare yourself for the next thing. So I, um, I just, uh, you know, c currently the work is not necessarily about war, but it's about uh, dealing with uh, the aftermath of uh, what happens after you leave, you know, what happens in deaths, uh, what's, uh, and, and so that's something that continually haunts me. I, I think I've given up on working on anything else. Well, I think that, as you say, it's ongoing. I mean, as an unfortunate thing, it's so much part of um, not just the history, but of the present. Um, and one thing that 
I'm very interested in memory as well. And it's interesting because if you do speak to people who have not had, maybe not even just war experiences, but haven't had traumatic experiences, say, in their youth, they often don't have, or they say they don't remember a lot from their childhood. Like, it's interesting, like, when some, you know, if somebody takes something from you or somebody marks you in a way, then you remember it, you have a scar, you have, or psychic scar, metaphoric scar. Um, so it, you're talking about living in a state of vigilance. You're um, aware, you know, because <laughs> you have to protect yourself. So in some way, it can, I think, kind of train the artistic practice which is one of noticing and taking in I, I don't know well you know I it would be very pretentious of me to say that this is not a cathartic practice it absolutely is um, and uh, the, I don't mean for it to be necessarily but I just remember for example I kept having this recurring uh, dream of the shelter that we used to hide in and it was always the same dream going down the steps uh, into darkness basically and finally i i worked for months on this one painting of that exact dream and then i stopped having the dream and that was after about 15 years of having this dream very very recurrently and so it's just interesting. Again, you know, there's so much we don't know about how the mind works. I'm, I'm certainly not a psychologist uh, to be able to analyze that. Uh, but uh, I do remember quite a bit from that time period. I, I remember almost everything. And I talked to family members and they seem to have blocked a lot of it out. Uh, but I remember quite a bit, and I remember things in details, uh, down to, for example, how shattering glass looked as it fell. Uh, things, you know, very, very small details tend to stick in my mind. Yes, there's two, there's two ways of dealing with it. One, it, that you I, like transform it into art and you just remember it because you can't like stop remembering. Right. Um, or, not that you can't move on, but you, it just stays with you. And then there's that other where you just can have amnesia. But sometimes I, I think, and I may be the case, I'm not sure, but I certainly noticed because I grew up in a multi-generational family. And of course they had uh, an immigrant family. And um, anyway, um, they didn't like to speak about things and they had been through war and they just didn't speak. They may have remembered it too, but it's just this, we won't talk about that. You, you know, that's certainly very true. With a country like Lebanon, which uh, was so desperate to compete on a global stage after the war ended, uh, you know, the Lebanese are, they pride themselves on being uh, cosmopolitan and very much uh, in touch with what's happening. And they definitely did not want to be associated with the war after it ended. Uh, so that was one thing. But the biggest reason why a lot of Lebanese um, reject the war or don't remember the war is because uh, after the war ended, the government um, uh, issued a law whereby they prevented media outlets from um, discussing the war in any uh, 
kind in any in any form and i i do have a copy of that law if you're interested uh, in having it uh, it's just really uh, fascinating because what the government succeeded in doing is uh, uh, creating a state of uh, collective amnesia and uh, the reason of course was that the, the warlords were the same politicians that took over after um, the war ended. So it was important to them that the war not be brought up again. And so there's, of course, when a country is not allowed to heal properly and address the past, history tends to repeat itself. And that's why you find that Lebanon is still uh, seeped in sectarian strife and arguments and there just really hasn't been a very open and frank discussion about what happened. Even after uh, a certain amount has, uh, of time has passed, you still found that the Lebanese just did not want to discuss the war. And uh, it wasn't until uh, after 2005 that I started seeing other Lebanese artists uh, work addressing the Lebanese Civil War. I mean, they had been working on that prior to that. But I think with the assassination of the prime minister or the ex-prime minister of Hadidi at that time um, and the withdrawal of Syria, there was definitely less fear of uh, repercussion if people were to discuss the war um, more openly. I'm Majid Al-Wahidi, a multimedia journalist based in Washington, D.C., and an MA graduate from Georgetown University. I'm the Middle East and North Africa podcaster with the creative process. I was fascinated to hear Reem talk about what painting means for her, based on her experience as a survivor of the Lebanese Civil War. For her, painting is more than just coloring in, as she describes it. It's an endless dialogue that uncovers and speaks with memories that are unspoken or hidden. I was listening to this while I was still reading the news about the recent explosion that crushed Beirut. When Reem said that most people who survived the Lebanese civil war couldn't heal because they needed a break, and also the government issued a law to prevent media outlets from discussing what really happened, I found myself wondering if with the latest explosions, artists or people in general want to discuss the pain of the civil war even more. That now the past makes more sense because it connects to their lived experience as survivors and human beings. As a reporter who reported during the wars and after they ended in my hometown, Gaza, I could really relate to Reem when she said that when you survive constant hardships or wars, you get to a point where you become scared to be at peace or suspicious of long time periods of calm. But Reem's artistic practice made me think from a new perspective. In my career, writing about wars usually happens in real time. You break the news and of course, you think about the aftermath. If you have space or access, you go back to see if new homes were rebuilt or if people are now displaced and hopeless. The past is important context, but your eyes are always on the present. When Reem reflected on her dream about the same shelter she used to hide in during the civil war, and how she kept painting it for weeks and months until she stopped having the dream. I was really taken aback by how powerful and important inner narratives can be as pieces of history and evidence. 
In the second part, Reem talks about similarities between Hawaii and Lebanon, and the use of gunpowder and fireworks as creative tools. Me and Reem also discuss the importance of fostering and understanding the potential of artists for a better society and future. Listening to this interview has helped me not only see myself in the dialogue with me and Reem, but also recognize the meaning of taking time to reflect on memory and the things we leave behind, with the different narratives, interpretations, and colors, and how they eventually shape our creative work and communication with ourselves and the world around us. And so I think it's interesting as I as I watch as I see your journey when you came to America as Washington DC and now you're in a number of years in Hawaii uh, which well I visited Hawaii but I'm still not I'm not so familiar with it as you uh, but we see it as a kind of paradise were you trying to was it what was it that attracted you or is that me as an outsider projecting you know go, going from war to paradise and calm or is it something else more complex than that you know it's actually really uh, I, I moved here because uh, my husband uh, was the PhD candidate at the University of Hawaii um, and I started teaching at the University of Hawaii as a lecturer um, at, at the same time the interesting thing was that I really got into researching Lebanese politics after having uh, these very intense discussions with uh, Native Hawaiians on uh, the strife that the Native Hawaiians go through uh, locally. Um, the, the curator of Asian art at the Smithsonian, uh, Haloha Johnston, was such an important coach for me in terms of um, what really happened historically. And I started seeing a lot of parallels between Hawaiian politics and Lebanese politics. And that was really my entry point into all of this. Um, life in Hawaii is actually quite tough. You know, it's very expensive. Everybody has two or three jobs. Um, we have a huge homeless uh, population. And so it isn't, uh, the paradise that people often think it is, uh, at least not for people who are living here. So the parallels between the two places are, uh, are just quite frightening <laughs> in so many ways. I will say though that it does help when you've spent a day in the studio painting a, a war zone to just step out and see a pretty landscape. <laughs> Yes, it is. It is very restful, um, and I'm sure I'm, it's it's good to hear that because we we tend to simplify. You know, we who go to Hawaii for vacation, and and so I can imagine there's all of this hidden aspect, and uh, I would like to know more about that. Uh, let's speak a little bit about some of your motifs, and also some of the things like I believe you use sometimes. You know, you paint and you draw, but you also sometimes put fire onto the it's just right. describe yes <laughs> you know i uh, i believe so much in the role of instinct when you're doing work and i remember working on this painting at one point uh, and i was uh, I, I put it outside uh, because i knew that i wanted to burn into it so i i had a little i don't 
um, smoke, so I didn't have a cigarette, and I, I had a small lighter. Uh, so I was trying to burn into it, and my neighbor walks by, and she's a smoker. So I asked her if she had a cigarette. And of course, she looks at me like, are you crazy? You don't smoke. And I, I explained to her what I wanted to do. I wanted to burn into the surface. And she said, well, I have a soldering tool that you might want to use. So I started soldering um, into the surface at first, but it still wasn't enough. And that's when I thought, okay, how about fireworks? And the lack of control that you, um, that you experience when you build up an image and then you shoot fireworks over it is very similar actually to what happens in a war zone where you have no control where uh, the, the bomb's gonna fall or the shrapnels are gonna hit. And so I very much uh, resigned myself to letting the fireworks do what they need to do. And then I reworked the surface after that. But uh, that was a very, gunpowder and smoke uh, were very important aspects of the work. And so it's interesting because that, um, that spontaneous uh, shape or movement or uh, capturing a moment in time of the explosion of the fireworks um, is contrasted then with these grids or these Islamic patterns or sometimes uh, Christian icons and uh, a complex cartography which is ordered but then you have these these other moments. So the grid is uh, something that's always been so critical to me. Of course, subconsciously, uh, that's how it started, as a lot of things often do. But you quickly realize that, of course, it's your um, semblance of, of order, uh, your imposition of order in a situation where you can't control anything. And so um, the, the maze in a lot of the drawings has, uh, apart from it being an informal grid, uh, it's also a kind of a, a map to Beirut, like a city grid of Beirut, which is not really based on the cartography of Beirut, but symbolically it is. The maze leads to nowhere, and I feel that the political situation in Beirut since the end of the Civil War has really led to nowhere. And then you oftentimes have uh, Christian and um, Islamic iconography um, juxtaposed on the same grid. And that has uh, been to hint at sectarian strife uh, that's been ongoing since uh, before even the Civil War began, right? I always, I've often said that my work tends to leave people at sea. And you think of some of the really exciting works throughout history where they give you enough to hook you, to want to look at the piece, but they don't give you answers. I definitely don't want to give people all the answers. And I'll tell you a secret. It's mostly because I don't have any of the answers, but I, I think that that's part of the exciting um, aspect of the process of painting is that you're always questioning as you go. Um, if the minute you have all the answers, then you have to find something else to question. 
And you also do these portraits. Do you do, I haven't seen, or I don't know if there's elements of self-portraiture in them or where these faces who are also disappearing and parts of them are being torn away almost. So uh, the series is titled uh, Moribund Outlivers. And, you know, these are people that are nearing uh, death. They've, they've outlived their expiration date. And um, it was very important for me to not approach them as painting a portrait, but as having the portrait materialize out of the act of applying paint to the surface. And what I mean by that is, um, you know, if you try and tap into the, the hysteria of um, the post-war survivor and just try to convey that through the mark with the hopes that a face materializes, um, you know, to, co to quote uh, Gilles Deleuze where uh, he's describing Francis Bacon's work, uh, it's the materializing of uh, the head without a face. And that's something that is very difficult for me to achieve and maybe out of, um, out of 10 paintings, I have half a one or one that comes to being. Um, so you don't wanna force the image for sure. And I'm curious about your teaching process. You're teaching art. You're also teaching, as I understand, sometimes uh, young people who've gone through traumatic experiences, or is that more of an occasional? So um, I actually, in the summers, when I, I usually go to Beirut every summer, and uh, I work, I volunteer with an organization called Ana Akra, which means uh, I read. Um, and it's an organization that promotes literacy, uh, mostly to uh, public school kids in Lebanon. But since the Syrian refugee crisis, they have uh, opened all these uh, transitional schools for uh, Syrian refugees to help them integrate into the public school system in Lebanon. And uh, I, it, it was such an opportunity to work with these kids who those Syrian refugee kids to give them what I was not given, which was uh, just a moment to address the, um, their memories uh, immediately after experiencing them. Um, it took me years and years to be given the allowance, in a sense, to tap into my memories after the war. But uh, with these kids, it was really immediate. And a lot of them had experienced so much trauma that they couldn't even speak. Um, they hadn't spoken for quite some time. And so giving them the chance to tap into memory was really important. Um, and so a lot of them ended up painting uh, images of deceased family members. Um, and, and on the local level, I do teach community college. Uh, and a lot of my students have their own traumas going on at home as well. So I think that the idea of war is quite expansive. Uh, we're always at war in some form or another. That, that's so true. And, and of course, to the 
the young person experiencing it, as you said, that, that you don't know what's normal, what's abnormal. So if it's a violent situation or um, not knowing, you know, being uprooted from your home, whether it's for a war or another reason, it feels like a war, as you say. Absolutely, absolutely. Um, the sense of security isn't, isn't there. So what are you um, learning? I mean, um, when, when you go to Beirut, I, I want to continue with that, um, but also with your other students, you know, it's wonderful that you can give that opportunity to them and this chance to bear witness. Um, and what do you learn from them? What do you take away from them that, that helps well, you? A lot of humility, actually, because um, especially with my community college kids, um, it's it's never really a very heavy experience that you can bring to them. So, for example, I taught a workshop over the summer uh, through the Washington Studio School in D.C. It was an online workshop um, on political art theory uh, for four weeks, and I was able to go into a lot of heavy subject matter, um, civil rights, um, war and post-war memory and all of that. I can't quite approach my community college kids with that kind of heavy information uh, consistently. Um, so you kind of have to meet them halfway. And, and that's, it, you have to, um, it takes a lot of humility to be able to uh, push your interests to the side and say, okay, uh, let's connect in a different way. Uh, so it helps actually just to see things through their eyes and, and see uh, their imaginary worlds that they create. Um, it's quite exciting. I love teaching. I absolutely love teaching. It's one of the most exciting things, you know, to walk into a classroom. They start with blank canvases and then something happens. It's really great. Um, you know, I look at your, your use of color and are you, you're drawing on certain memories to achieve those colors. I, I know that black you use is important, the certain mixes, what, what you're seeking to achieve. Absolutely. Uh, there is this very specific um, hospital green that I often use um, that comes directly from uh, my memory of old buildings in Beirut. Um, so, you know, when I moved back from Greece as a four-year-old, I was only five days old when I was flown out of Beirut. Um, and so uh, you come back as a four-year-old who's a very visual four-year-old, and then you're in the middle of a war zone, and then you see all these um, remnants of buildings. And I just remember thinking, it's so ugly. Why am I here, <laughs> you know? So I saw, I certainly saw those, uh, those uh, green buildings. Uh, um, I, I have very specific colors that I incorporate in, in the paintings. Uh, black, certainly, I have so many different shades of black, but um, with my current research on the philosophy of the infinite, I think that layers of black don't even do enough. And so it's, uh, uh, everything is deliberate. Everything has a reason. Um, and it's very different than how I approach uh, teaching color, actually. It's interesting how colors have memory. And we might think that the strongest colors have memory, but even like, as you say, 
institutional colors that you wouldn't see in other parts of the world. And, or, you know, I'm in France, you know, the color of the um, mailboxes that I won't, you know, and I go somewhere else, it's so different. Um, and how that can evoke a country. I can stand in, you know, a, a city. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. And, you know, Beirut um, has a very confusing collection of, uh, of colors due to that history and layering. Um, and so a lot of times there isn't one identifying factor, but a lot of those colors come from a very specific time period um, that was typical to the 70s and 80s for sure. Uh, I often find myself very nostalgic for that time period um, you know, in the early 70s and late 60s, before I was born, uh, because it seems that uh, the, the, the things that I had witnessed were the remnants of that time period. And in terms of other disciplines, um, you know, music or, or film or things that also help trigger your memory and bring you back to those places and time. So the um, nostalgia, again, for that time period uh, of, in the 60s, I, I love jazz from that time period. Uh, I'm a huge fan of um, also Ennio Morricone, who recently passed away. Um, and uh, it triggers something in me that I just can't explain. Um, and it, it perhaps has to do with me being very young and uh, remembering my parents uh, in Greece sitting and having um, a glass of wine on a Friday night on the balcony. Um, so I can't quite put my finger on why these things um, are important to me. Uh, but that's not necessarily what I listen to when I'm painting, though. So when I'm painting, you know, I just have uh, an alternative playlist that I listen to and uh, it's just uh, because these music pieces are an experience in and of themselves. So I can't really connect them to painting. All right. Well, I think, um, you know, something that we have been asking people and now I think particularly with the pandemic and also for you being distant from family in Beirut, uh, our thoughts are on the future. And we have time now to reflect on how we might you know, work towards giving a better future to the next generation. I know you must think about it also with your teaching. Uh, yes, yeah, so I think that uh, there's a struggle that a lot of uh, art teachers are going through uh, nationwide and worldwide. Um, I don't know how it is in Europe, frankly, but in the States, uh, there's much less emphasis on the importance of the arts uh, in public schools, for example, and in universities. Um, so it's, it makes me very sad because uh, the arts and the humanities in general um, are critical in creating uh, a conscientious society, uh, a feeling society, a society that um, can not only uh, achieve, but can ethically achieve. And so I think that people constantly underestimate the importance of that. Um, and, you know, we, we talk about um, how detrimental binary thinkers can be sometimes. Um, 
binary thinkers are the way they are because uh, they don't understand the importance of nuance. And that nuance is often, that gray zone is often where the arts lie. Um, and I think that that's such an important aspect of uh, society. I mean, like I said, we don't just need to achieve, we need to achieve with, with meaning and with heart and with, with morality. Uh, that's interesting because that's not, you know, I do ask this question in different ways of different people. And um, yeah, people have mentioned empathy, but you know, the, the moral dimension of the arts and how the arts are able to, um, whether it's morality tales, you know, that are straightforward or through a real humanizing story that, uh, that allows you to see in detail, like the consequences of actions uh, and over time know what that does it's it's not something that a lot of people mention because speaking about morals is not something that maybe is, is fashionable to talk about um but it's interesting they're teaching tools the arts are in fact teaching tools about if if you listen correctly if you look at them correctly on how to be a better human well and the truth of the matter is that there are some people who are born to be um, creative. Um, they're born to be artists. And um, the importance of fostering that is necessary because if we each fulfill our purpose um, as humans, then society is better off for it. So in other words, if I had been anything else uh, other than what I have become, I would have only been living uh, up to half of my potential. And so that's really important to address that. Uh, I have a lot of students whose parents don't want them to be artists because it doesn't make money. But that means they're only living up to half of their potential because they're truly meant to be artists. And so, it's, society needs to shift its understanding on what is important. I think that in some ways it comes down to as well, yes, because people are, there's always um, a financial tag put to people's professions. And I know that in America it's even more so. It's certainly in some c countries in, in Europe, I know I, we have projects in Greece as well and in France, of course, um, where that is not as closely um, what you do and how, what you earn. <laughs> it's, not, <laughs> it's not the same, but it seems to be in America where it's what you earn is your value. Exactly. Uh, that's uh, highly problematic um, on so many levels because uh, you often find uh, the, the housewife sitting at home and doing so much for her home, but she's not earning as much. And so she feels less valued, even though what she is doing is holding the family together. So that's highly problematic to think of, of uh, money equals worth. And I think in terms of uh, what we think about the future of the arts is it is nice that there is a system for compensating artists, but in some ways the art, what used to be just like the art world became then the art market. And so then you're only a valuable artist if you have a certain, I don't like to get negative on it, but then it, it means that some people, it, I think that it gets in the way of some people 
this appreciation of art, even if they're not collectors, because, you know, have you ever gone to a museum? And I even have gone with like uh, art critics and then they just talk about, oh, I saw that painting. It's like, uh, and then it's something like the money. It's like, it's, uh, it's, not, the, it's not the looking or the experiencing. It's, uh, it's absolutely true. Um, and uh, honestly, if, if, you know, this is a very unpopular opinion, but um, I don't think paintings are worth millions of dollars. They're, they're really not. Um, and uh, you're isolating so many people by placing that price tag on certain paintings. And so um, I just really wish that it had been altogether a more accessible um, experience for so many. The street art movement, for example, is so popular because it democratizes the process of looking at painting. Uh, it brings it out to the public. It's on the street. Um, but then you have the, the blue chip artists who are on the other end of that spectrum. And uh, so I, I just wish there had been a healthy, happy medium between the two. <laughs> well, it's certainly something that I, I think back uh, like fondly when I understood that um, arts education was a more common most people had a piano in their home and that when you have that kind of relationship with art um, it becomes more natural that uh, you support art when you, you get older and it's uh, it's uh, more of a community experience working on a project we actually didn't mention yet your um, your 8 by 8 Shangri-La exhibition and curation project. yes uh, so in um, November, there's a show opening at uh, the Shangri-La Museum of Islamic Art, Culture, and Design here in Honolulu, um, and uh, it's uh, titled 8x8, which is, of course, uh, a play on um, uh, 808, which is the area code in Honolulu, but it's also eight artists in eight galleries in the museum. And uh, so each artist uh, is from a different discipline and we're each asked to respond to uh, the collection. So, uh, so that's very exciting. It's a project curated by uh, Leslie Mickelson. And uh, then I'm also co-curating a show with um, Jan Dickey and Alina Kawai, um, which was supposed to open at the Honolulu Museum of Art School uh, Gallery but um, due to the pandemic, it's going to be a virtual exhibition. Uh, we, we have seven artists from Honolulu uh, or from Hawaii, uh, seven from California and seven from New York in the show as a dialogue between uh, these three different states um, in painting. And the, the show's titled, Why Are You Painting? And what is that experience of curating for you since normally you're on the other side? I, I, I'm not meant for it. <laughs> I really, really, I mean, had it not been for my co-curators, um, they've been very patient with me. Um, I, you know, curation is, is an art in and of itself. Um, I am not a curator. Um, I consider myself a facilitator. Uh, but really, if I have time and you give me the choice, I'm always going to go to painting. I'm going to be in the studio working. Um, that's the same reason why I'm a horrible self-promoter. Um, I don't put myself out there 
any time I have, I'm just painting. Um, and so uh, <laughs> it's been a learning experience for sure. <laughs> Well, I think it's interesting. I think you have a lot to say and, and communicate so that um, that can come across in your curation um, experience. Uh, so I'm sure you add to those shows and maybe you'll be involved in more uh, in, in years to come. <laughs> I do, although I understand it's one of being with people and uh, it's, a, it's a different experience as I understand. Well, I want to... I want to thank you, Erin Basus, for your uh, lifetime commitment to the arts, um, for your works that express the, the pain, the pathos, the uh, complexity, um, and that help us remember what is most important in life. Um, thank you for adding your voice to the creative process. Thank you, Mia. Thank you very much. This interview was conducted by Mia Funk with the participation of collaborating universities and students. Digital media coordinator is Yu Young Lee. Associate interviews producer on this podcast was Majd Al-Wahidi. Music was composed and conducted by Ziad Rahbani. Has this interview sparked your creative process? If so, you can submit your creative works to submissions at creativeprocess.info for an opportunity to be included in the projection elements of our exhibition traveling to leading universities or published on our website at www.creativeprocess.info. Want to get involved in exhibitions or interviews? Email us at team at creativeprocess.info. Thank you for listening. <laughs>